welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and thought leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. And we're here at Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We're on a field trip now. We're out in uh, Granite Falls, near there, on the uh, Upper Sioux community, attending a big conference on um, thriving together in Minnesota. Talking with one of the uh, guest speakers at the conference, Kevin Lindsay, who is the Human Rights Commissioner for the state of Minnesota. How, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing well. I really appreciate the opportunity to be at the conference and speaking with you today. And uh, it's always nice. Um, I've studied about human rights, and uh, one of my big topics, it, it kind of ties in with, uh, if you've heard Mayor Carter speak, he always talks about the consent of the governed and pointing to the Declaration of Independence where, you know, the natural rights. And then that, that's kind of versus the Constitution where it's like they choose which rights will we protect. They don't give you the rights. Everyone thinks the Constitution gives you rights. But it's just, you know, so, so what, what's your job as a human rights commissioner? Are you here to, to recognize everyone's natural rights or are you here, well, the law says we'll protect these rights? Well, fortunately, we don't have to get into too much of a dissertation concerning natural rights. It's pretty much spelled out for us within the Minnesota statutes. Mm. So particularly the Minnesota Human Rights Act, the Commissioner of the Minnesota Human Rights Department is responsible for enforcing the Minnesota Human Rights Act. So we investigate a uh, variety of claims that can be filed. So employment, housing, health, public accommodations, public services, if people feel that they're being discriminated in those areas, they can come to the department. And we really seek to sort of level the playing field. Most people, if they were to go into court and they were to file in state court, uh, for example, in Hennepin or Ramsey County, that would cost you more than $350 to file a complaint. So if you are an individual of limited financial means and you feel that you've been discriminated against, you can come to the Department of Human Rights. We can investigate that matter for you. Uh, if you uh, don't have a claim, then we'll explain it to you, why you don't have a claim, which I think actually has value in a democracy of people knowing what their rights are. Uh, but if, you, if we believe that there has been a violation of the law, then we will uh, make a finding and then we will try to settle that dispute on your behalf, um, representing and ensuring that your rights and privileges as a person aren't infringed upon. And that's also included within the Act. Beyond the Human Rights Act, um, well, I should say one other thing within that space. We also ensure for state contractors that they are providing equal employment opportunities and also paying women fairly. And um, that has been something that the state has been doing uh, now for 50 years. Uh, the piece concerning ensuring that women are paid fairly is a recent development. The equal employment piece has been the one that's been for 50 years. That's been since 2014. Minnesota is relatively unique among states and taking on that task and providing an agency such as ourselves. Then we do school bullying. We partner with the Department of Education to provide technical assistance to schools on school bullying. We partner with the Metropolitan Council and the Department of Employment and Economic Development and serve on the Emerging Entrepreneurs Board. We also enforce... What's, what's the Emerging Entrepreneurs? Uh, what's the human rights issue there? Well, uh, as Dr. King said, um, what does it a person if they have these rights but if they don't have enough money to be able to buy themselves a hamburger and a cup of coffee so civil rights the idea of being able to have economic determination for oneself uh, go hand in hand they're critically important so 
Um, you can't have civil rights unless you have silver rights. So to that piece, uh, it's really important that you're able to uh, have some economic determination for yourself. So, well, then that gets into another old, old story. I mean, what is the purpose of a democracy for people pursuing happiness? Does pursuing happiness mean getting rich, the American dream, or does it mean uh, growing uh, your potential as a human being? So, so what I would say to that, there's this book called The Coming Jobs War. It's by a gentleman by the name of James Clifton, who is the CEO of Gallup. And Gallup famously asked people a variety of different things. And one of the things that they asked people is, what do you want uh, most importantly to you in your life? And you might think that most people around the world would ask, answer the question, say, exceedingly rich beyond uh, King Midas, right? But the reality when they asked that question is that people wanted to have enough money so they could have a roof over their head, that their children could be educated, and that they could live a reasonably comfortable life. So it's not necessarily, and, and this I think is sometimes what gets confused in America, is that it's enough so that you don't have to fear for your economic safety or security. Uh, losing a, a paycheck or to doesn't mean you become destitute or homeless. Uh, having enough so that you can sustain your family and to make sure that your kids are educated, that's really, uh, I think, central and key to a democracy. If people don't have that, then the democracy becomes much more tenuous. And I think we have to kind of get back to that. Now, what, what is, is your background in law, or, or how did you start out your career? So I went to the University of Iowa, graduated uh, from the law school there in 1991, cut my teeth as an employment attorney. I have been practicing some form of law uh, now for 27 years. So um, you, you studied law and you talk about your, your job is to enforce the law, but yet, uh, so there's kind of a, a, a strict element there, but then there's a soft part of your job too, right? Uh, trying to understand people, the kind of the suffering of people that have had their rights abused. Do you, do you feel any of that? So another one of the duties within the act is to use education, conference, and conciliation to reduce discrimination, disparate outcomes. So very much I feel part of the job is to inform and to educate and bring people together to ensure that all rights are protected under the law. Those uh, under the Dayton administration primarily have been through executive order. Uh, we've really appreciated the trust that the governor has given to the department to serve on a variety of different sub-cabinets and to assist in various areas. Uh, for example, here in the Upper Sioux community, Governor Dayton signed a tribal consultation order. Um, that executive order directed administrative agencies to have tribal consultation policies with all 11 federally recognized tribes here in Minnesota. Not every state has that. Uh, again, leadership on uh, the state and for Governor Dayton to... Uh, facilitate conversation and dialogue, diversity and inclusion council, um, the state being intentional and creating hiring opportunities for people within the state. Uh, coming out of a conference or a, a summit meeting that he had with leaders in North Minneapolis at that point in time, 2011, the unemployment rate for African Americans was uh, about 26, 27 percent. There had been a report by the Economic Policy Institute uh, which had indicated that the greatest disparities within the nation among metropolitan areas was the Twin Cities. So addressing um, 
employment disparities by being intentional in hiring. That was really key. Governor Dayton has taken a lot of steps. He's hired uh, James Burroughs to lead the inclusion effort, and there was a discussion about uh, the hiring efforts that he's been able to bring forward with people like uh, Tracy Gibson with an MMB, and then Edwin Hudson also with an MMB, and then Commissioner Franz with an MMB as well. Uh, those have been significant. Driving change concerning economic development uh, for businesses. So we have done a lot more within that space. Um, so uh, the efforts like Equity Select, in which commissioners have more discretion to reach out to disadvantaged businesses, uh, that's been really key. So kudos to Assistant Commissioner Alice Roberts-Davis for really leading that effort, and then Commissioner Massman within the Department of Administration. Uh, they've really started to turn the dial in that area. For us, to this piece that you asked about concerning education and outreach, uh, again, for the very first time through this Executive Order Diversity and Inclusion, you have civic engagement. So Nick Corr within the Department of Human Rights has been leading the effort to have agencies be intentional to ensure that disenfranchised communities are involved in public policy development making. Uh, over the last two years, Nick has provided a host of trainings for all agencies. Uh, we have now identified a couple of projects to do a deeper dive on the metrics on how effective those agency efforts are in ensuring civic engagement. And we're really excited about what we're learning, what we're doing in that space. Uh, again, here's an example of Minnesota kind of leading in trying to do more to ensure everybody's rights are protected under the law and everybody truly has a seat at the table. Um. Are there things that you've learned at the Human Rights uh, Commission that you never expected to? Uh, what, have there been sudden things that have dawned and you said, wow, I didn't realize that before? I think um, it has reaffirmed for me that there are certain things that you can never take for granted. Um, and the work that we have been doing to try and ensure that people are aware of um, how the lack of interconnectedness is negatively impacting them, even though they may not necessarily appreciate it. Um, again, kind of tying it to this conference, um, our lives are, again, quoting Dr. King, inextricably intertwined, and the failure of that to recognize that something that negatively impacts you also negatively impacts me. And if we don't look at things from a zero-sum game, um, but we look at something as a shared prosperity, uh, we all benefit from that. Staying in that course, continuing to dialogue with people on that, you can't do it enough. Um, and I think for me, that's the lesson that's been kind of reaffirmed in the position that I'm in. Um, I was recently watching a show in which Jefferson, the character, who, the individual who's representing uh, President Thomas Jefferson, uh, had said, uh, quoted something that Jefferson said, uh, sometimes it's very hard to get people to do what's in their own best interest. And I think that that was uh, a wise thing said by the former president. The uh, whole concept of white, uh, rights, uh, these last few weeks, it's been the, the, people, the immigrants trying to get across the border, or at least to see a judge to uh, ascertain whether they have rights or not, um, have their rights recognized or not. Uh, what do you think about all these things? I mean, you must look around in your job and, and then look at, uh, you know, what rights people have on a national level, too. So there is, um, we have been looking at the issue. Um, again, our responsibilities and to ensure Minnesota law is properly enforced 
issues that arise under federal law, those are going to be handled by federal agencies and the federal courts. That being said, however, um, I appreciate the presentation by the demographer, Susan Brower, here at the conference talking about Minnesota gains and has benefited by immigration. And when we become stronger as a state, there is going to be an impending labor shortage. One of the ways in which we can deal with that is to be welcoming to immigrants. Across the globe, when we're talking about competing, and make no mistake, Minnesota has been successful because it's been able to leverage the talent of its people. We are the 16th largest uh, metropolitan area in the United States, but if you compare us GDP-wise, we're the 13th largest. So if we're a boxer, we're boxing ahead of our weight class. But we only continue to do that and to outperform cities that are bigger than us if we leverage the talent of our people. And we have to be still a magnet for new people, new ideas, new innovation. So it's critically important that we get that issue right. So if we want more immigrants, but can we get them? Well, we can. Uh, I think that we need to be more welcoming. Um, obviously, there's going to be a challenge concerning the travel ban. There's going to be a challenge concerning the way in which Congress is moving, the pace upon which they're moving on immigration reform. Um, but I think we have to continue to stay the course. Um, I think it's really incumbent upon all of us to raise our voices. America is about an ideal. It is not about one or two individuals. And we keep that in mind. I think ultimately we will prevail. What about the Canadian border? <laughs> um, Minnesota, two of its largest trading partners are Canada and Mexico. Um, the ambassador Canada is having an event here in the very near future to kind of secure that relationship with Minnesota. Um, I'm not, I can't speak for the president concerning uh, the back and forth with Prime Minister Trudeau, um, but I think most of us realize how important Canada and Mexico are and that they are valuable trading partners. And we, again, if we're the uh, 13th largest GDP metropolitan area, we're not just selling goods within, the United, or within Minnesota, we're selling it all throughout the world. So we want to have valuable trading partnerships with everyone. Now, you're, I have to compliment you on your poise and your, your, your intellect, and I'm just wondering, uh, are politics in your future? Do you, you've been around it? Do you want to jump into it? Well, right now I am focused in on um, completing the term with the governor. There is uh, work that we're doing on suspensions and expulsions. I really appreciate the superintendents that we have been working with. Sometimes it's easy when a problem first gets presented that people kind of go into their corners and don't come to the middle and really work on it. Excuse me, you mean school superintendents? Correct. So um, when we looked at data concerning suspensions and expulsions within the state of Minnesota, we found that there were significant disparities as to who was being suspended. Obviously, uh, if we've got a shrinking size of workforce because of the demographics it was always important, but it's even more important for every child to succeed. And I really appreciate the superintendents meeting us, listening to us, and developing plans to make sure that we're not suspending children um, when we don't need to. And from our vantage point, 
we're trying to work as hard as possible to assist them in building engagement from other local units of governments, the parents that are in that community, the students themselves, because we know if the students are engaged, then we all win. We're not talking about suspending them, we're talking about graduating, and when we're talking about graduating, then we're talking about having a stronger economy, stronger society. Well, I'm trying to analyze your answer there, and it's like, well, you didn't really answer the question <laughs> about <laughs> politics, and then you gave a good uh, talk about something positive. To me, that adds up to a yes. Well, that probably means that I've been listening to uh, Governor Dayton and uh, Senator Smith and uh, Senator Klobuchar. Um, they have been good um, examples, I guess, as it relates to listening, answering questions, <laughs> Um, and making sure that the most important thing uh, gets said, and that's how do you build a stronger, better Minnesota. Well, positive messages, nonviolent. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. One of our topics today at, at, at the conference. Uh, I mean, you've only sat through a part of it, but what are your hopes for this conference? So my hope for this conference is that people are going to take the ideas that they've learned here and they're going to build upon um, the things that they're already doing across the state of Minnesota. Uh, one of the speakers said it last night that they're always amazed when they come to events like this about all the wonderful things that are going on in Minnesota. And there are a lot of innovative things that are going on. And if we have a chance to really leverage and learn and do a deeper dive on some of these things, I think we can even have a greater level of success that we're experiencing. Uh, time is really precious when we're able to come together in these ways and <clears throat> leverage what we're doing. I think that that's just so critically important. Well, it's been great talking with you, Commissioner uh, Kevin Lindsay, here at the uh uh, on our remote location of our podcast, uh, the Think Tank of the Air, in uh, uh, the Upper Sioux community near Granite Falls. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll be right back after this. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome to uh, Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We're talking in a remote interview here. We've taken a field trip to the um, Upper Sioux community, talking to the tribal chair, Kevin Jenswold. How are you doing today, Kevin? Uh, very fine. Thank you for having me there, uh, Mr. LeBeau. Well, uh, I don't know how to tell you this. I've never been to this community before. Can you tell me a little bit about it for all the Minnesotans that have never traveled to just a few miles from Granite Falls to visit the Upper Sioux community? Um, we are approximately 120 miles west of the metropolitan area. We are, our reservation, uh, approximately 1,800 acres, uh, 500, approximate 500 tribal members. We've been in existence since before the state of Minnesota was created. We lived in this uh, Minnesota River Valley for 10,000 years. Um, Minnesota itself was a Dakota word, and and um, the United States acknowledged us in 1934. Well, it seems like it's turned all the way upside down. I mean, you have the Minnesota took your name. How, how do you feel about that? Is it like you're sharing or like they took it? I believe it's an acknowledgement of 
the pre-existing conditions that uh, immigrants found when they came here and on their migration westward across uh, our nation and um, from our perspective what else would our homeland be called but Minnesota Yellow Medicine County where we live in is reflective of the band of people our Dakota people is the the people of the land where they dig the yellow medicine. So it's very appropriate, uh, you know, to at least reflect on our, our our history and our attachment to this land, and it's acknowledged by, you know, the immigrants who created Minnesota, the state. The, the Minnesota, the state, as opposed to Minnesota, the, the word. Now, it's it's such a small reservation. How do you maintain a sense of... Uh, uh, cultural continuity in the midst of the earth in this big ocean of uh, probably uh, Minnesota farmers? Well, I guess uh, one of the ways we do that is we acknowledge the Mitaki Owasi. We are all related from our ancestors to those people here in the present to our children yet to be born. From the Upper Sioux perspective, we, uh, when we uh, I'll say, reclaimed our, our rightful homeland after the 1862 conflict is that um, there were 13 family members who, who resided on the reservation proper and two other small villages near here. And I suppose back in that time, you have to understand that it took many people working together to maintain, you know, the village, if you will, and the cooperative spirit to that everybody gets ahead and so there was no isolation the way that it is today and that's our greatest asset is that we are still identify back to those two villages and those 13 families that created our home and it strengthens our bond together that unlike anywhere else in the world if I buy a home, I don't like my neighbor, I can, you know, simply sell my home and go uh, somewhere else. But um, our home has been defined by our creator and our family's been defined by by the sacredness as well. So, you know, as much as we have differences and, and difficulties, we all understand that this is our home and we are all related Mitaki Owasi. So how do you get along with your Granite Falls neighbors? Again, at 50, almost 54 years of age, um, at least 50 years of that time I've spent in or near Granite Falls or on the reservation. And again, in that time, society has changed to be more acceptable to differences, but I can say as a youngster that as much as I might not have understood or comprehended my surroundings that there were racism was evident but today like I said I have the greatest hope that as moving forward our children I'm talking all children will we'll move past those those differences in color and things like that that separate us I, talked earlier today about creating circles 
rather than drawing lines in the sand that separate us. And like I said, as far as history goes, it just sits there for what it is. But for me to move forward and be effective as in, in, in my commitment in my role to the yellow medicine people, I, I have to also look forward to say, see the potential in what's going to be. But from where I come from, we, we do um, consider Granite Falls our hometown, regardless of, of how it came to be. I mean, we've been here forever, long before the town was ever created. So, I mean, it is just what it is. I'm just imagining all the different roles you play as a tribal chair. I mean, here we have a, well, we're sitting in a casino, so, so you're kind of a business owner or manager, and then you, you deal with all the people that come in, so you're kind of a diplomat, and then you uh, are also kind of a teacher because people don't know much about Indian culture unless they've investigated it pretty thoroughly. You, you do a lot of things. How, how, do you balance all, how, how do you balance your act? Well, I guess first thing, Mr. LeBeau, as far as businesses, you, you, you use that term that would imply that um, it is a ownership role. We, as a sovereign nation, we engage in enterprises any other government would do, so we consider our casino an enterprise of the Upper Sioux community, which then allows us to provide for our, our public services to our tribal members, our health insurances, and in, in our infrastructure needs. So from that perspective, it, it is not a business. It is an enterprise of our, our sovereign government. And as far as a diplomat, I, I, I've been honored as for going on my 14th year now to be serving my people. And I do the best I can to represent us uh, in the best possible way I can and to speak as carefully as possible to to ensure that um, I make no missteps and that I protect the people who have compelled me to stand for them. As far as being a teacher, I, I would believe I'm more of a student. Each of us has many things to learn and Part of our, our cultural teachings, though, is we pass on our knowledge to each other to ensure and strengthen our, 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 our people, our children, and, and those coming after us. And one of the things, though, it is we are secretive at times, but again, that's probably a defense mechanism from all the historical things that have been taken from us or prevented us from moving forward and we need to protect certain things to ensure the survival of our culture, the sacred teachings and ceremonies and such that um, were outlawed until the mid-1970s. We can now, you know, openly, you know, teach our children and openly um, practice as well. You have to understand that um, as Dakota people, the War of 1862 changed the landscape of, of our homeland and that we were forcibly removed and exiled from the state boundaries. And, and this is what the wishes of, of the, 
the state lawmakers were, and it was acknowledged by the United States that we would be removed from our homelands. But one of the fallacies and one of the probably um, misconceptions was that somehow by saying we had to be gone, that we were gone, is, is, is to me is not plausible because somebody says something doesn't make it a reality. And, and so this has always been our home, regardless of what the immigrant has said. And understand, uh, I'm talking from my mother's perspective. My mother's lineage is of the, the Dakota nation. My father is an immigrant from Norway, so I also know a bit about that. So I, I want to acknowledge that as well. But we've, uh, like I said, we've had a difficult time in, in in the historical perspective that we've had to to live and to overcome all of these difficulties. But we are uh, also proud of our home and what we've been able to protect and what we've been able to 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 keep for our children's future as well, regardless of the the many difficulties and punishments imposed upon us over the last hundred years. You mentioned hardships. Uh, with the recent uh, uh, problems at our southern border, with uh, the government taking uh, children of immigrants, a lot of people brought up, well, that's kind of an American thing. We took uh, uh, children from, from the African slaves. We took the children from uh, Indian families to send them to schools to... Uh, uh, basically steal their culture out of them. Did, did that happen uh, with your people here? Absolutely. The boarding school scenario is a very sinister fact of life that exists within the families of the Upper Sioux community imposed upon us by a government that wished to exterminate the Indian. It is in their records and it is in testimonies in Senates and House of Representatives that um, it was their wishes to to remove the Indian uh, and to make a better human being. You know, we, we were never considered on a level of, of even humanness. So if we want to talk about, you know, things away from here, we also have to look at our own issues that come before. So it isn't surprising that the same tactics are being used. But again, if you look at the tactics imposed upon our Dakota people, you will find very similar to the genocidal issues that were, were inflicted upon uh, another race of people across an ocean that was acknowledged by the Geneva Convention as far as removing children from their parents, removing the men from the women, from committing biological and chemical warfares, from taking language and cultures away from people and segregating them and killing them because of their, their race. All of those things apply to the native populations of, of this uh, wonderful Turtle Island. Well, here at the uh, Thriving by Design conference that um, I've attended here the last couple of days, you welcomed the group in speaking Dakota so how did you learn Dakota? Did you learn it from your, from your ancestors? Probably everybody has a spirit, and that spirit compels them. 
Unfortunately, I don't know my language. Again, one of those things that were taken from my mother's people was, was the language in order to create a better American. My mother was a First Nation speaker, so I, I learned many things from her. But the conversation wasn't such that it was my first language, nor, nor is it my second language. But we've identified that in order for us to continue to move forward, we need to keep our language safe and sacred. When I was first elected, I believe there was 14 first language speakers of the, of the Minnesota Dakota dialect. Now there are three. So, but we do our best uh, with tribal programming as well as in the school district in, in Granite Falls to, to help revitalize our, our language through those speakers that we've had over the last several years that I've been here. And there was a man who helped to, to recover the Blackfeet language. I believe his name was Kip. His last name was Kip. What he told when, when their language was gone, what he was told was learn one word a day. And I hope I'm, I'm, I'm recalling this correctly, the story as it was told to me, but this is how they started to bring their language back. And so I try to do that the best I can. I have teachers from my, those people who are still here. I, I try to ask them how to say certain phrases I, I learn from 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 written books by Lewis and or Riggs and whoever the other one was. So we have written documentation. That was our problem was we don't have a written language so everything is a passed on orally and that is one of the threats to our language. So we have to be creative in how we I'll say document that, you know, nowadays, even like we're sitting here today, we have technology that allows for something to be stored forever, and, and, and we so we use as much, you know, technology as we can to help encourage our young people and old people such as myself to continue to learn what we can. You only uh, fail if you stop trying, and, and so learn a word every day, and, and you'll do the best we can, and like I said, I've I've acquired certain, in, I'll say, minimal capacity to at least express some welcomes, some acknowledgments, some concepts as to, through my mother's native language, the sacred language of the Dakota people. Well, it's kind of befitting that a different nation would have a different language, but. Um, I think most Americans don't quite understand the concept of an Indian nation as a sovereign nation that deals with the federal government. Do you do a lot of educating in that respect? It seems to be one of the most difficult and frustrating aspects of what I've done on behalf of our people over the last 13, 14 years is that it is very prevalent. We are we are considered novelties, and even lawmakers and decision makers and difference makers have a hard time understanding the simple constitutional acknowledgement of, of treaty nations and the rights to exist as they have, and to conduct their lives as they have. You know, it's 
it is amazing that in this day and age that that simple courtesy isn't, isn't shown to us, especially when people come to visit us that they just think of us as an Indian casino. You know, most, and that's troublesome to me, is most, well, most of the sovereign Dakota nations I know of and, and other native sovereign nations are almost always referred to by the names of their casinos rather than the names of their people or their homeland. And, and to me, that's, it sads, saddens me. You know, but if you take every opportunity you can to, to at least encourage people to ask one more question and to be open-minded as to why we are who we are and why we do what we do and why sovereignty is 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 something that we are you know belongs to us. People talk about reservations and they 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 think that. The United States gave us this land, you know, the simple term reservation. We reserved our lands for ourselves be prior, you know, through negotiation with the United States. You know, not that the land belongs to us, but that we belong to this land. And we reserved the right to, to live upon our relative and, and something the United States could never take away. It was through negotiation that we, we made these agreements, but it was through aggression that the United States changed the terms. We just have a minute left. Um, do, you, do you have a sense of, of hope, or are things going to get better? There has to be hope once you give. You know, I heard, though, that somebody once said, if you have to rely on hope, then you no longer rely on your prayer. And I have the greatest prayer and the greatest belief that uh, if we continue to move forward as a people, we'll, we'll always be safe. As long as we gather the strength to continue to defend our, our home and our people and strengthen our, our, our cultural teachings, then we'll, we'll never have to worry. Well, Kuntaka, our God, put us here to live in harmony with, with, with this land. The, we've been trying to, they've been trying to exterminate us from existence for forever, yet we still remain. And that is because we, we were born together with this land. Like every other nation was born to a land somewhere this this one just happened to be the one that my mother's people were born to, and, and, and we will always be here. Okay, talking to the uh, tribal chair of the uh, Upper Sioux community, Kevin Jensville. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. We'll be back with uh, Think Tank of the Air in a moment. Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. We're so fortunate to have one of the Twin Cities' greatest power couples in our studio today. And we're unfortunate that they're leaving town in a matter of days. We have with us uh, Toki Wright.
and Brittany Wright, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Brittany Lynch, mm-hmm. Miss Britt, but now Brittany Wright. Yes. Well, congratulations on your recent wedding. Thank, Thank you. you. Very much. Thank I, you. I was... I, my invitation must have been stuck in the mailbox or something. <laughs> yes, everyone's did. It was yeah. just our parents. Yeah. Just yeah. your parents. So you decided to elope? Is that what they call it? Yeah. Yes. Now, why was that? Well, we, we decided that it was most important for us to have some completion and to really uh, dedicate ourselves to each other and make sure that we were as solid as possible before we made our, our transition out of town. You know, we've both lived here for the majority if not most of our, almost all of our lives. And um, it, it's just us making a promise to each other and making a promise to our loved ones um, that, you know, we're going to stick to each other and, and, and take care of business. Mm-hmm. And logistically between the moving across country and him starting a new job and I'm in school and we're having a baby in October. <laughs> There's a lot going on this yeah. year. And we, we had an initially intended on getting married this summer. And when all the life started happening, we realized planning a wedding was not uh, feasible. And so how could we still do um, the commitment that we wanted to make to each other? And um, and so we did. And, and that didn't require a huge audience or a huge production. It just required us and a pastor and two witnesses, <laughs> yeah. and um, and that's what we had. And then we'll have a larger celebration next summer. Well, actually, I think that bodes well for the longevity of your marriage because I have a theory that the more time and effort you put into the pre-marriage activities, such as shopping for shoes and all these things and mm-hmm. matching dresses, the more likely you are to be divorced. Mm-hmm. So because I think you put your effort in the right thing, get married, be serious to each other, and then, yeah. and then go on from there. Yeah. So... And I'm serious when I say you two are a power couple because you you both do so many things. If I went through your resume, that would take up our entire time here. <laughs> Thank you. But Thanks. but uh, are you both from Minneapolis? I'm from St. Paul. St. Paul? Okay. Well, that's better because I'm from St. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Well, now it's even more challenging. How did someone from St. Paul ever get hooked up to a guy in Minneapolis? <laughs> it's uh, fate. We were both yeah. doing similar work but on different kind of different planes. I, I Myself as an artist and her doing uh, organizing at the University of Minnesota and bringing him in for a conference and I performed at a conference and we, we met years ago and we just kind of we we were in communication with each other and then we fell out of communication with each other for years and then she ended up becoming uh, my daughter's teacher mm-hmm. <laughs> in and, second grade yeah so then we we, we then we sep- we didn't see each other again for a long period of time. And then we were both in Africa, in different parts of Africa at the really? same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was uh, doing a study abroad program, and I was doing uh, I was doing some some uh, uh, diplomacy work with uh, young artists in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just like, "That's pretty fascinating. We should probably sit down." And, and <laughs> yeah, talk. I'm having a life changing experience <laughs> in South Africa. He's having a life changing experience in Sierra Leone, and. Um, we're like, yeah, we should probably like debrief this when we get back to Minnesota. Yeah. I feel like we're having different experiences, but similar right. at the same time. And that debriefing ended up being like our first date. Hmm, that's so it, good. it took us both uh, leaving the Twin Cities and going to different parts of Africa <laughs> yeah. for us to ever sit down and be like, we actually need yeah. to connect. <laughs> yeah. Have a life changing event together. Yes. yes. Wow. So, Toki, tell me about your, your musical background. Sure. Uh, well, I'm. Uh, hip hop artists uh, also make, 
you know, produce electronic music, um, a lot of house music. I'm also an educator, music educator. I worked with uh, McNally Smith College of Music for about 10 years and ran the nation's first uh, fully accredited hip-hop studies program. Uh, I've also done a lot of um, recording, releasing projects. Um, I've, I've put out music through our uh, multimedia company, Soul Tools Entertainment, as well as with Rhyme Sayers Entertainment. Uh, traveled all over the place doing arts uh, advocacy work and uh, music, arts and culture uh, development work. Wow. When you, when you grew up, who did you listen to? Oh, wow. Everyone. And that's part of the reason why I, I still have an interest in music because I've, I grew up open-minded and grew up in, in a household that not only listened to um, funk, but also, you know, my friends are listening to Guns N' Roses and my other friends are, you know, coming from the West Indies and it, I'm learning about dance hall and reggae. And so I, I've I've gotten into music education as a result of being around a diverse group of people. Hmm. So, you know, the the etiology or the source of, of hip hop. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how do, what, what's the one minute version of that? I mean, well, there, there's multiple theories, but um, the two th- theories that kind of uh, prevail the most are uh, that music that has come through Jamaica and through the, the sound system culture where people would sound clash and have big stacks of records or big stacks of uh, speakers from across from each, across from each other would uh, battle to see who had the loudest system and who could, you know? And I so think people, I've heard that uh, done at the beach sometimes. <laughs> and people would uh, would kind of dance and respond to it. And what people would start to do is toast and speak over the music. Mm. And the toasting became more and more complex. And then when Cool Herc, uh, a DJ from Jamaica, came to the South Bronx, he brought with a lot of the turntable styles of, of looping records together. And they're, all of these multiple cultures are developing at the same time. So you have... Uh, graffiti culture, which is developing on its own. You have uh, break dancing or street dancing that's developing in its own spaces. You have these this toasting, battling, uh, MCing culture that's uh, competing with each other, and you have DJ culture, which is just kind of the brainchild, the person that's bringing the events together, the person that's controlling the large mass of the crowd. So that mixed in with um, spirituality with uh, local politics with uh, violence in neighborhood and community uh, there's just a multitude of of things that intersect with hip-hop and hip-hop impacts as well and it's just hip-hop is more so a um, a collaboration of a multitude of uh, genres of music as well as uh, styles and conversations that exist in Mostly in the African American community and and the uh, Puerto Rican and in the Latino community, Latinx Latinx community in the South Bronx, and has expanded around the world to include like, what is the youth culture? What is the the youth uh, fashion? What is the youth um, style of or sound of dress of uh, of uh, hairstyle? You know, it's just, just like a youthful, um, not only a genre but it has culture. cultural. Well, it sounds like a sound heard around the world and, and mainly to youth ears. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, well, and it's also growing up now, you know. Right. Our, our favorite hip-hop artists who were, at, um, who were there at the inception of hip-hop are, are getting older, and we're, we're, we're seeing them age and reach new ages that they haven't reached. And so 
hip hop is also evolving in the sense that some of our uh, favorite uh, early hip hop artists are continuing to make music and they're talking about things that they've never talked about before because now they have kids or yeah. grandkids <laughs> or, you know. Um, so hip hop is also evolving in that way. Hmm. How did you get involved in your work as, well, let's say you do radio, but you're mm -hmm. also kind of a producer, impresario. Yes. So um, for me, I grew up in the performing arts. And so that was my foundation. I was obsessed with music, um, trained to be uh, what they call a triple threat. So you have to dance, you have to sing, you have to act um, and be ready to pull, to do all three or to pull either one out of the arsenal at any time. And so did, did you go to like an arts high school? Uh, not an arts high school, but I went to the Lundstrom Center for Performing Arts. And so um, regardless of where I was um, taking my schooling academically, after school and on weekends was dedicated to the arts. It was dedicated to showcases and to training. And they, um, unlike most youth-driven arts programs, are not just giving you classes to learn some skills and to do some cute recitals. They are very serious about preparing you for the business um, as an artist. And so that was my foundation. And when um, I got to college, I uh, got to explore it in a different way where I finally took poetry outside of my bedroom and outside of my notebooks and started performing. And uh, the conference that Toki and I met at I was working behind the scenes at the conference and helping put on the concerts and um, just continuing to put myself in spaces where art was being produced allowed me, even though my degree is in sociology, I was also getting my degree in music business just, you know, uh, on the side through what anywhere, anytime someone would let me be in the room, I would. And I'd volunteer or I'd intern or I'd just stay up all night in Google in research. And so I started learning how people can exist in these professional art spaces outside of Broadway, which is kind of like my frame of reference as a child and outside of Hollywood, which uh, was just far away for a St. Paul girl. And it allowed me to start to see like, oh, this exists over here and this is happening in the Twin Cities and this exists over here. And um, I can combine all of those different interests and all of those different visions I had for artistic expression and, and merge them all together. I don't think you're ever bored, are you? Never. Never bored. Never. There's too, there's, there's too much opportunity, um, and I have too many goals and dreams to ever allow myself to not be chasing them. I can be resting, and I can be <laughs> doing recreational activities, but, but never bored. No, you got to get your energy up for your next big bash of activity. Yes. So do you two work together? As, are, are you co-business owners? Mm -hmm. Yep. In Soul Tunes, or yep, Soul so, Tools. Yep, Soul Tools Entertainment. And Britt also has a company called Visions Merging, where she does a lot of consulting and, and other work. Uh, on the entertainment front, SoTools uh, focuses on media, so developing film, developing, uh, designing flyers and posters and other graphic design, uh, but releasing records, albums, projects. We have a radio program on KFAI. Uh, mm -hmm which uh, have, has happened every Saturday for the last five years. Uh, we've uh, done some television. Britt has done some television with uh, SPNN. So we kind of dabble in a lot of different areas of media, uh, thinking of the future of communication and how you have to have intersections between all of those forms of media to really interact with people. Um, you know, if, if I am going to write a traditional article that would exist in a paper, it also needs to be 
available online so that I can read it. And maybe that to, to for it to actually have an impact, that story from that article needs to also have some visual element mm-hmm. in a short video, short form video or something. And so we help people develop those kinds of uh, uh, ideas for their businesses and uh, or for their events. So we might make a video flyer, production flyer for someone for their, their next event. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of dabble in a lot of different things. How, how do you coordinate? Is, is, is one of you a boss? Uh, who's the CEO? He's the boss. Oh. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's it, good it, to it, say that up front. He's the yeah, boss. Yeah, you know, in, now that we're married, I, uh, I, think, I think that's a good cue to take. But no, in all seriousness, it just, it just kind of depends on what the project is. There are yeah. things that um, I'm presented with, and I'll bring him on board when it makes sense. And there are things that he's uh, working on that he'll bring me on board when it makes sense. And then there are things that we do separately. And... Um, and so it, it depends. Sometimes one of us is the boss and, and sometimes we're each other's teammate. Yeah, and then we've had to learn through kind of trials and tribulations mm-hmm. to figure out what are the best practices because me, you know, I I, I might have been a little more stubborn in certain areas. or Because you're a man. Right. Exactly. Or, or, <laughs> or I might have been too open and not. Uh, spoken about, spoken my truth and said, well, I'd rather do things this way. Mm-hmm. So over the years, we've kind of, we've either agreed or butted heads on things, but we've gotten to a place where we understand this is an area where that 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 is yours and that I need to leave alone. Mm-hmm. And this is an area that we work on collaboratively and we, and we do our best to not get offended by that. Um, but, you know, in the spaces where we work together, we work together well in the spaces that we work apart with. <laughs> we work apart well, mm-hmm. so we've got some synergy and some rhythm yep. at this point. Yeah, it, it's not for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> we don't recommend it for everyone, but we found a way to make it work. Hmm. Yeah, and if you if you do want to work with your partner, it is going to take some time to learn hmm. that dynamic. And when you are business partners and when you're just partners at home. <laughs> yeah. Wow, double partners. We're talking here with Toki Wright and Brittany Wright. I, I want to say Lynch, but I, uh, I know it's, it's I'm it's even hard. having to reprogram my brain. It's like writing checks the next year. <laughs> yes. So um, now you're moving uh, from the Twin Cities, Minneapolis yes. mm-hmm. to Boston. Mm-hmm. Can you describe, I mean, I know you've traveled a lot. What kind of music scene does Minneapolis St. Paul have these days? Yeah. Uh, and then how is it looked at from around the world? Is, are we on the map? Uh, we're totally on the map, I think, when it comes to independent music and um, just like independent style, Min- Minnesota is one of the top go-to places for for people for influence right now. Mm-hmm. Who are some of the top artists? Uh, some of the top artists, of course, Prince, right? And still, still forever. forever. All right. Uh, and, and if you have like a a, a a flag in your city like that, it allows for other people to get recognition. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis. Uh, next, mm-hmm. you have uh, all of the people involved with Rhyme Sayers, Atmosphere, Brother Ali, P.O.S., the Doom Tree Camp. You have uh, people like Alan Kingdom. You have people like Lizzo. Uh, you have people like, you know, and those are some of the larger artists. There are also a lot of other independent artists that have their own um, their own lanes in other areas. You know, the DJs that have come out of here like DJ K. Salam, who produces for most deaf and for Sizzla and a lot of uh, a lot of really uh, uh, big label artists are Rocky, who's produces for Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's some of it is um, face uh, face. 
I don't want to say face value, but things that you see on their face, like going to a concert and watching an artist on stage, and other people are behind the scenes you know, right. in managerial mm-hmm. positions, uh, in production positions. But they're still getting the checks and the Grammys and <laughs> right. the Emmys and, yep. and all of that. And they're making it happen. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you're going to... Um, you're going to Boston, which is on the coast. My my daughter went to college in New York. Okay. She applied for an internship, and, and they said, well, which coast are you from? <laughs> so, the western one. <laughs> yeah, the, the northern one. So now you're uh, going to be a, a couple from the Midwest, and you're going yes. to the coast. Is is Boston, um, is that a right place for you? Is it going to be a fertile place for you to grow? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I, I'm heading out to become the assistant chair of professional music at Berkeley. So we're stepping into it, it's a it's a we're we're constantly in a rising place I believe mm-hmm. like we're we're growing we're growing as a family we're having a, a our seed our child here in October and we have a stronger union and um, we're we're kind of le- we're in this process of moving if I can speak like that so <laughs> this way we're in this process of moving and in that process of moves, moving I've identified four key areas. Um, that you have to look at. You have to look at whether you keep something, mm-hmm. um, whether you throw something away, whether you give something away, or whether you burn something. Wow. And so mm-hmm. it's this, this spiritual moment where I'm in my backyard or I'm cleansing, I'm going through different pieces, articles of things in my house, and I'm saying, do I keep this T-shirt because it has sentimental value to me or am I keeping it because it's functional? Do I... Uh, give it away so someone else can have some some uh, clothing that may not have clothing? Do I uh, throw it away because it's useless? Or do I burn it because I don't need to think about it anymore? <laughs> it, it doesn't need to exist well, anymore. Right. We're, we're just about out of time. It's gone by so quickly. But yeah. Brittany, I'll let you, let you have the last words. What does this transition mean to you? You know, um, we're in a, a pivotal moment in our lives. We'll look back at 2018 and be like, okay, we moved across the country. We got married. We had a baby. We started a new job. Um, <laughs> what were we thinking? And also um, how brave of us to yeah. believe that much in ourselves. This is for us not discontinuing any of our work here in the Twin Cities, but it's expanding it to provide uh, national resources back to yeah. the Twin Cities and to expose uh, the Boston and East Coast to what the Twin Cities has to offer. And so for us, um, it's really taking our artistry as well as our family to a new level. So we're excited about that. Okay. I have one final question, just a one word answer. Will you be visiting frequently? Yes. Okay. (laughs) The right answer. The right answer. We've been talking to a power couple, uh, Toki and Brittany Wright, who are leaving the Twin Cities to go to Boston. Uh, Well, thank you for joining us on Synapse Think Tank of the Air. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa.